0: Okay, John chapter 4 this morning. One of the most tragic things that you'll ever hear, you've probably heard it before. You go to share the love of Christ with someone, the gospel, the good news, and you get to the point where you're kind of getting close They're receptive to an extent, and at some point they throw up a little wall. And oftentimes, it sounds something like, well, you don't understand. You don't know the things that I've done. You don't know my background. You don't know my past. As if somehow, in their own mind, God come down from heaven But seemingly, that's not quite enough for them because they haven't lived a life above a line in their own mind that they think is needed in order to even qualify for this amazing grace. It's sort of semi-amazing grace. It's not 100% amazing because you don't understand You don't know the things that I've done. Oh, yeah, I hear you say you're a sinner, but you don't know the crimes, the things I've said, the things I've thought, the places that I've been. But if we've seen anything so far through the book of John, and especially in our last few weeks through John chapter 3, it is that Jesus said a man must be born again The idea is, it's like a whole new life. It's not like, well, you were living a life that was pretty close, so I came and died on the cross and just completed it. No, it was a whole new life. He told Nicodemus also that religion and works in and of themselves are not enough, no matter how long you've been studying or what you know about the Bible or how religious you may be, how many ceremonies, rituals you attend, that's not enough either. And the types and the teachings of the Mosaic Law, they cannot save any man. They instead point to a man, that man, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. He had to come and he had to die. God had to die, but that somehow that's not enough for what you've done in your past. And that is the mindset of some. And in a sense, we're confronted again this morning with a woman who has that kind of mindset. She's no different than Nicodemus. She also must be born again. It's one of those musts that we say is in the book of John. Nicodemus, very, very different person. What an incredible contrast, right? between the first two characters that the Lord Jesus reaches out to. One, a man. The other, a woman. One, a Jew. The other, as we'll see, a Samaritan. One, a religious ruler, leader. The other, a social outcast. One, seemingly moral from the world's perspective. The other, undoubtedly immoral. And I don't think that the contrast between these first two characters that the Lord Jesus reaches out to is by coincidence at all. I think it's showing us the very different types of people, the different dynamic involved in this amazing grace that we sing about that is extended to the whole world. Whether you are the most religious person in the world or whether you are the most immoral person in the world. Either way, it's the same thing. You must be born again. And so this woman today, you've heard the story of the good Samaritan. This, of course, is a story of the very, very bad Samaritan. But she is no further away and no closer to heaven than Nicodemus was when the Lord Jesus reached out to him. It tells us something about grace. You're going to see a divine appointment this morning. I love divine appointments. Where Jesus reaches out to this poor woman who undoubtedly is just being haunted by her past. And you know, if you're here this morning, no doubt, this is a divine appointment. There are no coincidences. Nothing happens by chance in the kingdom of God. If you're here, you're better off, because it's true, operating on the basis That he has something to say to you this morning. That he brought you here by divine appointment and he wants to speak to your heart. Doesn't matter whether you don't know God or whether you even know God. And maybe you have something in your past. We all have something in our past. Or maybe there's something right now and the Lord wants to speak to your heart. Just assume that it's not by chance. It's better that way. It works better when you dig in and go, you know what, you're right. There's a message for me in the text here this morning. No matter what, whether I'm a Nicodemus type and I'm a seemingly moral person from the world's perspective or I'm the woman at the well and I'm seemingly immoral, doesn't make any difference. All of our righteousness are like filthy rags. We're all the same as we approach the king this morning. So John chapter 4, beginning in verses 1 through 3, Apostle John writes, Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, that's John the Baptist, though Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples, he left Judea in the south and departed again to Galilee. And why? Because he's not particularly interested in drawing any unnecessary attention to himself and from the Pharisees. Remember, they had already asked John the Baptist, are you the Christ, when he was causing a stir out in the wilderness? He's not ready quite yet to answer that question from the Pharisees. We talk about divine appointments. Jesus was working off of a divine calendar. Remember in the Gospels, he kept talking about his hour. There was going to be an hour. He had not yet come to his hour. So he's not ready to square off with the Pharisees just yet. So he left Judea and headed for Galilee, but, verse 4, he needed to go through Samaria. Now, Samaria is the region in between Galilee in the north and Judea in the south. So he needed to go through Samaria. And you think, well, obviously, if he's going to go from the south and he's going to head to the north, he's got to go through the middle, right? But no one needed in those days to go through Samaria. The Jews would circumvent the region of Samaria. They would go around Samaria to avoid the Samaritans at all costs. Around 722 BC, the Assyrians came and they invaded the northern kingdom of Israel and they conquered that kingdom and they carried away most of the people of the 10 tribes that were in the northern kingdom of Israel. And then they eventually sent some of their people back who intermarried with the Jews. Some of the Assyrians got together with some of the Jews, and that produced what is known as the Samaritans. Now, because they were half Assyrian and half Jew, the Jews looked down upon them. They considered them half-breeds. They didn't really think that they were real Jews. And so they barred them from worship in the temple. And so accordingly... The Samaritans built their own temple on Mount Gerizim, and they established their own religious traditions. They still held to the first five books of the Bible, what's known as the Pentateuch or the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They still held to those, but then they mixed in their own traditions in their religion. The Garden of Eden, where Adam and Eve were, was on Mount Gerizim. Noah's Ark landed. It landed on Mount Gerizim. And when Abraham went out to sacrifice um, Isaac, of course, he went atop, you guessed it, Mount Gerizim, according to the way that they had set things up in this new religion. So there was this rivalry longstanding between the Jews and the Samaritans. So you see, nobody really needed to go through Samaria. So when it says he needed to go through Samaria, it wasn't a physical need. It was instead a spiritual need. It was a divine appointment that was waiting for the Lord Jesus there. Don't ever forget about divine appointments. I believe that we have divine appointments for us all the time, but we miss them because we're not ready for them. See, it's not that they're not there Don't you agree? I think they're there. I just think we're not praying for them. And when we pray for divine appointments, it's amazing how we just tend to notice that they're there. When we're tuned into the frequency of the Holy Spirit, when we're asking him to show us what he wants to do with us today, and when we're spending time with him and we crack open his word and we hang out with the Lord, that all of a sudden you're like, whoa, I shared my faith today. Well, there's probably an opportunity like that most Days. The next time that you're waiting in line somewhere, or you're on a long bus ride, or you're delayed at the airport, you might want to think about the fact that this airplane needed, quote unquote, to be delayed so that I might be available for the divine appointment that God has on his divine calendar today. Nevertheless, imagine the shock of the disciples when Jesus says, Boys, we're going through Samaria. <laughs> For them, that would have been hard to hear. You have to try and put yourself in their shoes to understand, to have a hate for a people so much that you don't even want the dust from that place on their sandals because you don't want to owe them anything. You don't want to owe them a speck of dust. That was the kind of relationship that they had. And of course, as is the case oftentimes with a persecuted people, They oftentimes then, in return, don't like you so much back. So the Samaritans also hated the Jews. And this had been going on for 700 years. Both camps firmly entrenched in their hate towards one another. So what does Jesus do? When there's no possibility of bringing these two together, what does he do? Amazing, fascinating. He goes to Samaria, but he doesn't go alone. He takes his 12 very Jewish, very bigoted, very nationalistic Jewish men, his disciples, with him so that he might teach them that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the whole world and not just the Jews. He's one that loves all of mankind. So, verse 5, it says, He came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. That means that it's about noon because it's the sixth hour from sunrise, which means the sun is out. That part of the year and that place in the world, it would have been really hot, and so the first thing the disciples do when they get there is they got to get themselves some water. That well still exists today, Jacob's well. It's one of the uh, many verifiably authentic biblical sites, but you can't go there so often because it's in that war-torn area of West Bank. But what a great reminder just already as you look at these two verses here. As Jesus comes into town, what's the first thing that even Jesus needs to do? He needs to get some water. The Bible says here that he was wearied. You ever feel that way? You ever feel just wearied in a journey of sorts? You know what, it blows me away. The world struggles with the deity of Jesus Christ. I don't one bit. But sometimes I forget about the humanity how about you of Jesus Christ. You know that he was wearied at times. Hebrews 4 says, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Anything and everything that we go through, he knows what's that, what that's like. He knows what it's like to be hungry, to be thirsty, to be tired. He knows what it's like for those of you who may be going through something like this this morning. He knows what it's like to be rejected, to be heartbroken. He knows what it's like to go through the storms of this life. There was an English painter by the name of Joseph Mallard Turner who was once asked about a painting he had made of a storm at sea. And he told him that what he did was he paid this sailor to bind him to the mast of a boat and then steer that boat into and through the teeth of the storm. So that literally, as they're rocking around and as the waves are coming over him, he said, man, I wish I was at the bottom of the boat after I would said that. The waves are blowing into him, crashing upon him, you know, every few seconds. You ever been out to water there and you're kind of struggling a little bit in the ocean when you're trying to get a, a breath and a, a wave just crashes right upon you and you're having a tough time and you wish you could just get out of there really quick and that's exactly what he did on purpose so that he would really know what it was like so that he could live through it and speak from experience and paint from what he experienced, from what he knew. It was after that experience that he painted that picture, and that's why they say that the painting is so vivid, so real. You could say that that man, Mr. Turner, who painted that painting, he got it. He understood what it was like to be in the midst of a storm. That's what Paul is saying in the book of Hebrews about Jesus. He knows what it's like. To live this life. We can never forget that. That it wasn't just the cross, but his entire life. Wearied, tired, pain, physical pain. The things that he went through on a day-to-day basis. And we need to understand that. Because it's often at that very point in our lives, when we are wearied, when we are on our last leg when we've gone through things physically, emotionally, spiritually, it's often at that time when he has an appointment for us on his divine calendar. It's often at that time when I'm ready for that appointment, when I'm more desperate and I reach out to him, and then he brings that appointment my way. I was talking with someone this week about this very thing. It's so important because I could name 10 things he's going through right now. Just a rough time, and he's a godly man. And so I didn't really have anything to say to him. Any counsel I'd give him, he's already heard before. But the only thing that I did tell him was, well, you know what? It's often when things are at the worst in my life that God has an appointment for me. See, because when things are going well, I tend to just be la-di-da-di-da, doing my own thing, and I miss those appointments. And so you may have something coming up here, brother, on your calendar that you need to be ready for. Because here's the Lord, he's at the well, he's wearied, and he's also ready. It says he sat thus by the well. He was waiting. And, verse 7, a woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. This well's probably about a half a mile outside of town. And that was women's work back in that day. They would gather the water. Amen? I mean, no. <clears throat> no, no, not. I mean, <clears throat> I think it's when I- They would go out and they would get the water. And that's a half a mile, both ways, heavy pitcher. That is hard work. I think they probably tried to put the pitchers on their heads because, I mean, trying to lug that much water around like that, that is a tough task. Now the thing is typically what they would do is they would go early in the morning or they would go late at night to avoid the heat. So that's why this discussion about this being the sixth hour is significant because this woman is not going when the rest of the women in the community would go and there's a good reason for that. And we're going to see in just a few minutes that she was going at a completely unusual hour, noon, to go a half mile outside of town to lug around a jug of heavy water so that she would avoid the rest of the women in the community. But although she avoided the other Samaritan women, she failed to avoid this Jewish man who she came across, which just so happened by chance to be the son of God. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, how is it that you, being a Jew, remember the rivalry, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. This might have been the first time she ever received a kind greeting from a Jewish man in her entire life. Just remember that, by the way. Because there are groups of people, whether it's right or not, whether it's in their head or whether it corresponds to reality, that think that Christians are too good for them, that think that Christians don't want to talk to them. To think that Christians stand around and judge them for who they are—I'm not saying that that's you or necessarily me—but they believe that, you know. And I mean, I'm not picking out anyone in particular, but I believe I've met, I've known a lot of folks in the gay and lesbian community that think that we hate them, that think that Christians hate them. That's tragic. I was with some coworkers a few months ago. I think they were just trying to get a rise out of me. But they were talking about a story that was on the news of a church back east that was walking around with signs picketing gay people. And the signs were like, God hates gay people. And One of them turned to me and said, Joe, does God hate gay people? Putting me on the spot. Now, usually I usually don't like answering those kinds of questions, but this one was an easy one. I just turned to them and went, of course not. How could he hate them? He died for them. No matter what anyone's background is, they can be the woman at the well. That's the whole point of the story. He died for them because in actuality, he loves them. And it doesn't matter what you've done, there's hope in Jesus Christ. He brings that hope so that no matter what you've done here today, what you've done in your past, what you did yesterday, There's complete forgiveness and restoration found in Jesus Christ. And that is good news for a bad Samaritan woman. She was not a very moral person. But Jesus was about to, in a few years, go to the cross for her as well. What happened in the Bible when Jesus met someone that was especially immoral? He went out of his way to reach out to them. Almost to show the others. Oh, no different. Nicodemus, most religious man of the day. The woman at the well, the most immoral woman of the day. To make any difference, you're still just as far away. Still requires faith in Christ. So Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God, verse 10, and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him. And he would have given you living water. Don't you love the Jesus style of evangelism? He's able to take anything like a common day thing in nature and then turn it into a discussion about spiritual things. Remember, he did that with Nicodemus when he was talking about the wind. Nicodemus was having a hard time figuring out the spiritual rebirth. I don't get what this whole spiritual rebirth thing is about. And Jesus is like, Nicodemus is like the wind. You don't see the wind. You don't know where it comes from or where it's going, but you See the effects that the wind has. Same thing with the spiritual rebirth. Well, he's doing that very same technique here as he's just building some rapport with this woman, just easing his way into this conversation, trying to establish some commonality. Because remember, here's a woman who already is trying to avoid people when she goes to the well. Because she's thinking she doesn't really have anything to say to anyone, doesn't really want to talk to people about some of these things. And so he realizes with her, he's not going to be as direct. And Christians need to learn from that, too. Those that are evangelists, that have the gift of evangelism, that's great. Praise God. There's a time and a face to just come out and say it. And there's a time and a place to build rapport and establish a relationship with them first. Boy, it's real hot today. Well, it sure is. Well, it's not as hot as it's going to be in hell if you don't turn to Jesus. No, you can't do that. (laughs) That would be moving just a little bit too fast, in my opinion, right? (laughs) Although with Nicodemus, he did come out and say it, right? Because Nicodemus was a man with that background. Jehovah's Witness comes to your door, go. You have at it. Just go. Just say, you must be born again. Just do it. Just jump right into it. Go to the cross. Take him to Jesus. But if you're talking to someone who's been hurt and been beaten up, and who's got a background of sin in their life, who doesn't think they're above it, who thinks maybe they can't even qualify for the kingdom of God, then love them first. It's a good picture here of what the Lord does here. He's just so much more delicate. He talks about living water, the kind of water that quenches a spiritual thirst. Only Jesus can offer up that kind of thing, right? Now, he's talking about spiritual things, but as you're going to see in this conversation, a lot of these things are going to go right over her head because she's hung up on physical things, right? It says, the woman said to him, verse 11, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as well as his sons and his livestock? Sir, Mr. Jesus, you have no rope or bucket. Just thought I'd point that out to you. And this well is about 100 feet deep. How are you going to even get me water? And by the way, we got this well. It was a gift from our father, Jacob. Top that, Mr. Living Water Man. You know, it's just a little bit of a who do you think you are kind of question here. She's getting a little snippy with the king of the universe, but that's OK. He's just patient. I suspect, as I look back in my life, before and even after, that he was so much more patient with me, probably with you too. Praise God. Amen. And he just waited patiently. He knew the exact time to pop the question, the right place, the right setting, when it would set in, when he could go in and it would take its place in your life. So he answered, verse 13, and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water, the water that was in the well, will thirst again. That's the problem with material things and making a difference. What it is that this world has to offer, the best that this world has to offer, will leave you thirsty, unsatisfied. You know, on those days where you're working in the yard or you're running around doing errands and it's hot. Your mouth is parched like mine is right now. And you just could really go for a glass of water or some of Carol's iced tea. And then when you finally get that sip, oh, it's great. It's wonderful. It's satisfying for about 30 minutes. Right? And then you need another drink. And people are so spiritually thirsty in this lifetime, they'll go to any well, any water fountain that they can find to try to find something that they think will satisfy them. And they drink from alcohol or relationship or a new gadget, a new gizmo on the marketplace. Religion. Jesus says, I don't care what it is, you will thirst again. We ought to turn that into a plaque and hang it over every modern day source of pleasure. Sex, drugs, entertainment, money, you name it, do this and you will thirst again. You know, King Solomon wrote the book on the subject, literally, Book of Ecclesiastes. Go home and read it today. It's a great read. Solomon tried to find meaning in life apart from God. He said in himself, under the sun, over and over and over again. And he experimented with everything. And by the way, he had more than all of us combined had. So if anyone could have found meaning and fulfillment in life apart from God, it would have been Solomon, but he didn't. He was a botanist. He was a biologist. He wrote books and plays and poems. He was educated. He was rich beyond imagination. He was the life of the party. He was a party animal. The book of 1 Kings says that he threw a party every day for twenty to 30,000 people with comedians and dancers and singers, and the wine was flowing. I mean, it was the place to be. And no one had more money than Solomon. You know, they didn't have refrigerators back then or freezers, and he had ice cubes. How did he do that? <laughs> he would send servants up into the highest of mountains, and they would bring back ice cubes so he could have a cold drink when no one else in the nation had one. That'd be like having a Visa card in someone else's name with no limit. And they're cool with it, right? And if we're honest with ourselves, that's what we think we want. We think we're just missing a little something, something. And then life would be so much better. Life would be good. But Solomon said that there was no prophet under the sun. Life apart from God, under the sun, the physical world, you can maximize whatever. There was no profit there. That's the thing we didn't talk about a couple of weeks ago when we talked about the most interesting man in the world. The most interesting man in the world is miserable if he doesn't know Jesus Christ. Because he can have all of these things, and he can have... God bless you, brother. He can have all of these things. He can be interesting. He can be intelligent. He can be amazing. But if he doesn't know Jesus Christ... He's got a whole lot of nothing. Of course, then, since we're believers and we know conclusively that what Jesus is saying is true, then it makes our meddling with sin at times that much more tragic, doesn't it? When we know that we'll thirst again, when we meddle with those things. Just makes it even more tragic. And maybe you're here this morning and you're going, Joe, I am a Christian. I know I am. I'm born again. Holy Spirit's living inside of me. And I am thirsty this morning. Why? Because you've been going back to the old watering holes. You've been going back to those things, the things that made you miserable before you're a Christian. Guess what? When you are a Christian, they make you even more miserable. They didn't fulfill before. They're not going to fulfill now. They just leave you empty and frustrated. One of the Proverbs says, the eyes of a man are never satisfied. Ask about any rich person you know. How much money is enough? And to a fault, they'll giggle a little bit, but they all say the same thing. Just a little bit more. Every single time. Only Jesus can quench the thirst of the soul. As the psalmist said, as the deer pants for the water brook, so pants my soul for you, O God. That's why he said at the end of verse 13, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst, but the water I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. I discovered that again this morning. I rediscover that all the time as I walk with the Lord. Maybe you did too. That when you sing his praises, when you come and you pray, when you hang out with him, that your soul is satisfied once again. And that everything that I did to distract myself during the week didn't satisfy. And it's only in his presence that there's satisfaction. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water that I may not thirst, nor come here to draw. So notice when she says, nor come here to draw, she's still hung up again on the physical, right? I'd love a water source like that. Wow. (laughs) She's thinking more like a water faucet in my house. I just turn it on and out it comes. That would be Wonderful. And so he has to take this conversation a little bit further. And on the surface, it may seem a little bit harsh what Jesus does here. But trust me, there's a beautiful, divinely inspired plan. And it's perhaps the crux of what I want you to take home today. So please pay attention. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. And that was the truth, right? But was it the whole truth? Jesus said to her, you have have well said I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one whom now you have is not your husband. In that, you spoke truly. (laughs) You spoke to me truly in the sense that an attorney presents a perfectly flawless and true partial truth. That's exactly what you just did right there. Sooner or later in all witnessing, you got to get them to their sin, right? Because everybody wants Jesus, but not everybody wants to confess. Those are two completely different things. The idea of a Savior is all good. Yeah, save me from everything. But to swallow my pride and confess my sin is a must if someone is going to be born again. They have to first recognize that they're a sinner and they have to confess that sin and then they got to put their trust in Jesus for that sin. No one can be converted until they are first convicted of their sin. But even more than that and this is what I really want you to pay attention to this is very important when he eventually forgives her and saves her because he brings up her past she will know That he forgave her, not on the basis of a partial truth that she told him. But that he loved her and he saved her. And he loved her and he saved her, knowing everything about her. Understand that he knew exactly what he was getting. He was getting a sinner. And that when he got you and when he got me, he got a sinner. And if he had not confronted the fullness of her past, then she would always wonder, well, maybe he liked me or maybe he found favor in me or maybe he was blessed by me. But she would not know that he truly accepted her for who she really was, for the fullness of who she was, knowing everything she'd ever done, where she had been, what she had said, what she had thought, the sin in her life. Because the devil tries to do that. The devil tries to come along after and say, well, wait a minute. Are you sure that they all know that about you? Are you sure that God's forgiven you for all of your sin? I mean, yeah, it's a great gospel, but what about your past? What about that sin you did that you never confessed to anyone that's still in the deepest, darkest places of your heart? And he tries to use that against you. And there would always be that sense in our heart That Jesus forgave me, but I didn't tell him the whole story. Isn't that great this morning to know that, you know what? In reality, you haven't told the Lord the whole story. You haven't confessed every sin you've ever done, and neither have I. But he knows your heart, and he knows of it all, and he's thrown it as far east as is the west. I'm so glad that he knew it all. I confess even to this day that I try to confess, but I'm sure I forget some things. How about you? But he's forgiven me of it all. He knows everything. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch. He only saves wretches. And that doesn't tumble me down into condemnation. Oh, I'm a wretch. No, it helps me to understand even better that he loved me knowing exactly what I was. Not what I appear to be in front of everybody else. He knows my heart, and he's forgiven that completely. He says to this woman, I know you, I know everything about you, and I love you just the same. And she knew that he did. That's why he told her, no, you've had five husbands and the one you're with now is not your husband. He knew, and she knew that he knew. And so, verse 19, the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Wow, nothing gets past her, huh? (laughs) But now watch this. She realizes she's in the presence of a prophet, and what does she do like many people do when they start hearing the truth? They change the subject. Why? To get the focus off of her immorality. A lot of times someone will throw up a theological issue or, you know, try to debate something with you cuz they don't want to talk about their sin. That's exactly what she does. She says our fathers worshiped on this mountain, Mount Gerizim, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Just a smoke screen. It's the age-old, well what about the guy in the jungle of India that's never heard the gospel before? Does he go to heaven or hell? That's exactly do you guys immersion or is it um, sprinkling, New American Standard Bible or New King James. It's just a smokescreen, as one pastor said, a red herring that she hopes will hide her blemished soul from his penetrating gaze. But he loved her too much. Verse 21, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. It doesn't make any difference. The issue is not Mount Gerizim. The issue is not Mount Jerusalem. That's not what this is about. He said the real problem is you worship what you do not know. That's the problem. It's not necessarily where you worship or even how so much. It's who you worship. But he didn't love, by the way. He wasn't afraid to tell her something that we need to not be afraid to tell people too. Okay? Pay attention to this. Every once in a while, in love, after you've built rapport, after you've established some common ground, after you let them know you care about them, it's okay to say, you're wrong. You're wrong. The Samaritans had combined their own religion. They took the law of Moses, that's good, and then they combined that with other influences from pagan religions around them. Just like every other roll-your-own Religion that people have today, it leaves people not knowing where or how or even who they're supposed to worship. They're just confused. And Jesus makes it very clear that not all religions are equally acceptable before God. And that some act in ignorance and unbelief in how they worship. I know in Santa Cruz County that might be considered hate speech, but oh well. I don't see how it could be hate to tell someone the truth about God. Isn't it amazing that we live in a world today where you can use the word true or truth in every other aspect of life, and it's fine. In fact, the world would fall apart if there was no truth. Can you imagine trying to run a company without truth? Could you imagine trying to do anything without truth? But the second you invoke the word truth as it pertains to religion, people get all bent out of shape. But not Jesus. Jesus used it, in fact, three times here in the next two verses, making sure she understood there's truth and there's not truth as it pertains to what I'm sharing with you. He said, but the hour is coming, verse 23, and now is when the true worshipers, which means there are some that aren't, will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Everyone take note of this here, for the Father is seeking such to worship him. I like that. God is spirit, and those who worship him must, and here's that word again, must, worship in spirit and in truth. The Father is not seeking one or the other, spirit or truth. He's seeking both. Pastor John Corson once said, a church that worships in spirit and not in truth, it will blow up. A church that worships in truth and not in spirit, it will dry up. See, there are those that worship in truth, but not in spirit, and they are academically and doctrinally sound. They talk about their theories and they read their books, but it's dry. There's no spirit there. And then you've also probably been to a church where they spirit, or they worship in spirit, but not so much truth. You know, where people are excited, and they're rolling around, and they're barking, and they're doing all these crazy things. And there may be a spirit there of sorts, but a truth is lacking. I'll tell you, I was at a memorial a couple weeks ago, and it was a little bit tragic the way it ended. It was a great memorial up until the end. It wasn't the one we had here. That one, God blessed it. But I went to one just a couple days later. And everyone who shared, the pastors that shared, it was great. Until the very end, where a man got up there claiming to be a Christian, started talking about being drunk in the spirit, said it like three or four times. Talked about how he knew what was happening in heaven when this man who we all knew who was our friend had got cancer. They knew he, they were celebrating who he came, no, you don't know what was going on in heaven. And there's no drunk in the spirit. It's just tragic. And that's what people were left with as they left that place. There was a spirit there and you could tell this man loved the Lord but it wasn't true what he was saying and that was the impression left in the minds of the people in the congregation as they left the place that day. Someone once said, God is not as interested in how high you jump as how straight you walk. What we think matters. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind you don't check your brains at the door as a Christian absolutely not if you think you're supposed to you're wrong if you think that faith means I believe it despite the evidence you're wrong the evidence is on our side it's all on our side doesn't matter what study you go down doesn't matter what you look at Doesn't matter what it's archaeology doesn't matter what science it's history you name it religion anything philosophy You will come back to Jesus Christ if you study long enough. I guarantee it. You don't check your brains at the door as a Christian. you got to worship in spirit and truth. Spirit and truth. They're both important. Maybe you're here this morning and you feel like you're a million steps away from God. Notice that it says the Father is seeking such to worship him. Praise God for that. If you feel like you're a long ways away from God, just worship him today. Don't try to find him. Let him find you. Because that's exactly what happened here. Jesus, instead of taking the detour, the circumvent route around Samaria, he had this appointment with this woman who he probably, no, probably about it, who he by chance, no chance, he knew that her heart would be open. It says in our last two verses, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. See? She had been looking towards the day when Messiah would come, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Literally in the Greek, I that speak to you, I am. One of those great I am statements. Jesus never claimed to be God. Okay. Over and over and over again, he did. He claimed to be the Messiah Well, as we wrap this morning, I know we had to take on a little bit more. hope you're okay. We had to go through this whole story, though. It's 26 verses. We usually had Pastor Joe's like 8 or 10 verses. Well, we had a little bit more this morning. But we want to come back to this contrast between these two. Because one of the things that makes this story so beautiful, so timely, not coincidental, it follows the discussion with the most religious man in the world. The most religious man in the world needs to be saved. And the most immoral woman in the world needs to be saved. And that encourages me because he knows everything about me and he loves me just the same. We sang this morning, you see the depths of my heart and you love me the same. The Bible says he knows the secrets of our heart. Psalm 139 says, oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thoughts afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Thank you. Here was a woman who was lost, but now was found. No different than Nicodemus. But now, here's something I want to leave you with this morning as we close. This woman who was lost and is now found. So different than Nicodemus. Why did Jesus go through Samaria for this divine appointment? This is important. Sometimes we think that if Bill Gates or Oprah Winfrey, or Tom Hanks, or whoever's big time in this world, got radically saved, that it would be extremely impactful in this world. And that we think that if the Samaritan woman gets saved, well, oh well, who's going to listen to her? But isn't it interesting when Jesus shared with Nicodemus We end chapter 3, and Nicodemus just falls off the scene. He'll come back much later, and I believe we'll see Nicodemus in heaven. But Nicodemus kind of goes his way and wanders and ponders and thinks. And the woman at the well gets saved, and everything changes. Because in verse 39 it says, And many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all I ever did. See, it's amazing grace, it's an amazing gospel, because you have someone like this who can get saved, and everyone goes, wow, if she can be saved, and we know her past, we've shunned her in this community. She went and told people, and the whole village came out to see Jesus Christ. That was radical. I don't know that the same thing would happen if Bill Gates or Oprah Winfrey got saved. I don't know, they might just go, oh, he's Looney Tunes. She got saved, and people changed As a result of that, that is extraordinary, diverse, wonderful, amazing gospel of grace. Lord, thank you for...